Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey church, how we doing? I'm going to yell. There we go. How we doing? It always makes me feel better when the guy in the back is like, sorry, my bad, that was on me. Um, wasn't my fault this time. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm Pastor Peter. Uh, good to, uh, to see you all here this morning. Um, hey, I just want to celebrate Fall Carnival one more time. Could you guys watch that video and like out of the video, you guys are like, meh. Can we just celebrate that for a second? We had a thousand people on our campus. Um, and, and for some of you, you're like, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. Like, where does that fall with, like, where we've been? Two years ago, the last time we did this event, we had just over 700 people, meaning that we grew in this event by over 200 people who are on our campus. And so now some of you may be thinking, okay, what is the point of this entire thing? Why is it that we do a fall car? It was just like bounce houses for Jesus. Like, is that because I didn't see bounce houses for Jesus written anywhere. Like, I don't know why we do that, right? Um, so I want you to make, make you aware of how it is that we do follow-up for this event. So it's kind of schemy, and I love it. Um, we offer raffle prizes, right? And so for those of you who are there, know what it is that you have to do to be entered into the raffle. To be entered into the raffle for, we gave, a, we gave away a Nintendo Switch, which I found out was given to a kid on my soccer team, actually, the other day, which is pretty cool. So I got to follow up with him and his mom in person. Um, but we gave away a Nintendo Switch, we gave away AirPods, and we gave away like a pound and a half of candy or something like that. But in order to be entered into that raffle, um, you have to give us your name, your email, your social security, no, just kidding, not your social security, your name and your email, um, as well as your phone number. And then what we do is uh, we, we put all of those into a list, an email list, and I will send emails out to those people, uh, about four emails or so until Christmas Eve. And what we'll do is we will invite them to our Christmas Eve service. And that last email will be like, hey, look, we won't spam you anymore. If you want to opt into our other emails, here's a link to do that. If not, you won't hear from us again until you enter our raffle next year. And so we use it as an opportunity to be able to follow up and invite people into what we are doing. So there is follow-up steps to this event. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was good. I already, like I said, I already made uh, one connection with a kid on my soccer team because of it. But a couple big shout-outs to, uh, to a few people. I mean, and like we had probably 100 volunteers uh, help to pull this off. So thank you to all of you. Um, but uh, Mark Avila specifically, some of you know Mark. He donated every single one of those massive pumpkins that were out there. And then uh, when our light towers fell through, we had reserved light towers like six weeks before the event. And the week bo- or the Monday before, they called Jeff, or Jeff followed up with him, and they're like, oh, yeah, no, we don't have any light towers for you. Just like, what's the point of making a reservation if you're not even going to hold yourself to that? So anyway, Mark found light towers for us, not only found them, but also paid for them as well. And he didn't do it for that, but he saved us literally thousands of dollars um, for that. Uh, beyond Mark, um, we also had uh, Troy and Dina Yarbrough found another light tower for us, uh, donated that to us, and then uh, the Mello family uh, gave us straw for both decoration and seating and all of that stuff. And so some people, uh, we had a ton of help across the board, but we had a uh, special thank you to just those couple people. So can you give them all a round of applause for me, please? Thank you, thank you, thank you. So we are in Titus 2, so you can flip open to Titus chapter 2, um, and uh, we're going to keep covering, covering some ground. If you have a physical copy of your Bible, flip open, digital, click open. I don't care if you have your phone on as long as you're not checking on scores. I don't care. You can check on scores too. That's fine. I know some of my sermons get boring. Um, 
But today will not be that day. No, sir. Uh, today, uh, we are, last week, we, we talked about older and more mature Christians in the room. And can I just say, you older Christians, you, you handled it well. You took your medicine like champs. Um, I didn't hear uh, anybody upset. You, you recognize um, what is necessary for you to be able to uh, pass on the gospel and pass on Christian living to the next generation. So I'm, uh, I'm very, very thankful for that. And so this week, younger generation, it's your turn. Let's see if you can handle it as well as, uh, as the, the seniors and the, the more mature in the room, uh, the room did. I do want to warn you, though. There is going to be some spicy language here in Titus 2, verses 4 through 8. Um, some triggering language, possibly. Uh, so prepare yourselves, because at the end of this, I don't want people upset at me for what the Bible says. You can take it up with the author, okay? My responsibility is to preach faithfully through Scripture, regardless of what it is it says, and regardless of how hard it is uh, for us to be able to say it. And I'd actually venture to say that this Scripture, this passage, is a little bit uncomfortable because of where we're at in society, because of those societal norms and some of that pushback. And so it has a lot to do with husbands and wives and roles and that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, it's going to get a little bit spicy for a second. But... Before we, uh, we get there, I think we need to reiterate something I mentioned last week, and it was kind of a glancing blow last week, but really I think we need to land hard on this idea that, that even though your value does not change, your role does. Yeah, and I mentioned that last week, and I thought about it more and more, and I think that's especially true um, for all of us as we, as we progress through life. And we all know that, that change is hard, and so when it's time for our role to change, that's difficult. How do I let go of the baton and make sure that that baton doesn't get dropped, right? Like, those are difficult things. Um, and so as I was thinking about it, I thought, okay, what's a good, like, what's a good way for us to be able to visualize that, that while value doesn't change, our role does? And so the best I could come up with is the idea of professional athletes, right? It was a hard week for me. Um, Buster Posey retired this week from the San Francisco Giants. It was really difficult for me. <laughs> Some of you are like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Um, but, uh, but, but I was thinking about professional athletes. And, and professional athletes, they have a relatively short timeline um, for when they are able to be the best at their profession. Okay, and, and, and I'll use athletes because for most of us, it doesn't matter how good our knees hold up or, or how healthy our backs are to be able uh, to, to still go to work and still accomplish our jobs. For most of us, right? Most of us can, can have terrible knees and get uh, knee replacements and, and almost cut off our hand in different situations and that sort of thing. And, and we'll be fine. Like we can still accomplish our jobs for uh, the most part because the physical wear and tear um, of aging really doesn't apply to, to a lot of, of jobs. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Athletes can't hide from that, right? Athletes can't hide from that. And so because of this, we see this incredibly fast lifespan of an athlete's career, right? It starts when they're rookies, and obviously it starts way before when they're rookies, but, but when they, they get to the professional level, they are rookies, and maybe their knees and their weight, uh, they, they, they are not an issue. They can, they can jump high, they're, they're fast, they're strong, and they are, uh, the, the one thing that they are lacking, though, is in the realm of knowledge surrounding the game, right? And so while they can run forever and rebound quickly from injury, you, you don't necessarily want to put them on the floor when the game is on the line because they may do something dumb. And their physical ability doesn't always make up for their lack of knowledge. Right? But then a few years later, a few years 
go by and, and they really start to, to hit their stride. Professional athletes start to hit their stride. They hit this moment where not only are they incredibly physically gifted, but their knowledge of the game has caught up with their physical capabilities. Right? Most people would probably call this the prime of their career. They know their role. They're gifted in that role. They can execute that role faithfully and with relative consistency. Right? It's the prime of their career. But then something happens. Okay? They turn like 34 or 35. Right? I'm only using those numbers because I'm on the other side of 34 or 35. Right? And, uh, and something happens there. Depending on the sport, obviously golfers can play forever. Um, but the athlete's body begins to show its age. I know this firsthand because I'm not even an athlete, but when you get to this stage, you can sneeze sitting down and throw out your back, right? Like all of a sudden, sneezing is a full contact sport when you get to that age. But think about even, even now, think about the sport that you played when you were younger. Okay, think about maybe the sport you played when you were in high school and you're like, oh yeah, it was so good in high school, you know, whatever it may be. I am going to say with an arrogant confidence that at this stage in your life, you are far better sitting the bench than you would be playing that sport. You would be far more valuable, as a matter of fact, sitting the bench than playing that sport. And that's okay. Your value hasn't changed, but your role has Older professional athletes, like they're not able to bounce back from injury as quickly. They can't run as long on the court. Their recovery time uh, after a tough game is longer. They're in the twilight of their career, and there's, their role at this point in their life is no longer to be the playmaker for most of them. But they are responsible for elevating the value of the other players on the court or on the field. That's their role at this point. They become a mentor of sorts. The wise sage on the court who anchors the team is what they're supposed to do. Their knowledge and their wisdom at this point has eclipsed their physical ability. And while their value hasn't diminished, actually in this metaphor with athletes, they're probably getting paid the most that they have ever gotten paid in their entire lives. But while their, their value hasn't diminished, their role has changed. So taking that metaphor and applying it to who we are as a church, okay, our goal should be to, be, to, to do our best to create disciples, to, to find people in all stages of their Christian career, um, and, and give them a role based on the stage in which they find themselves. Right, So like you younger Christians, you Christians who are maybe more immature and don't, don't maybe have a, a great grasp yet of the gospel, don't have a great grasp of truth, we're going to put you in, in situations that probably are going to require a little bit more energy, but a little less knowledge. Right, So like, man, and, and I'm just throwing these things out there. I'm not saying you have to be young to do these things or anything like that. But like greeters is a great example. Man, you have to smile for a really long time being a greeter regardless of who comes up. Okay, That's hard for some of us who are crotchety and old at this point. Right, That's more difficult to smile for that long. I include myself. Okay, that would be difficult for me to serve in that ministry. So we want people who are young and sorry, young people, dumb to be able to, to serve in some of, some of those capacities, okay? Uh, or, or beyond that, like children's ministry or youth ministry. Like those are good spots for, for young, younger and more immature Christians to be able to serve. You older Christians, we want to put you in roles where we can capitalize on your wisdom. We want to see you as small group leaders. We want to see you serving on our executive board, on our diaconate, serving in places that will allow you to make decisions for the church that are going to help the church go further, faster. 
And that's not an indictment on, on the new believer. We don't want new believers serving in those roles uh, because, because we want someone who has endured in their faith and have a better understanding of the gospel to lead in a very real way. So as we look at Titus chapter 2, you younger people, bear these things in mind. Okay? And like I said last week, like I find myself with a foot kind of in each camp, as maybe a lot of people in their mid to late 30s do. You're like, I'm a grown-up, but I still feel like I can be a kid. Like, where do I kind of land? And so, so for those of you who are trying to figure out where it is that you land in this, this applies to, to every believer still. So as I go through this, remember that you don't have less value than those who are more mature than you, but you do have a different role. Because oftentimes I think that people assume that either maybe the church doesn't need their help, and so because of that, it's like, nah, I'm just going to hands off. I don't need to serve anywhere. I don't need to have a role anywhere. Because it looks like you guys kind of have everything, uh, everything locked down. But Scripture is clear that we need everyone to contribute based on their spiritual gifting if we are going to succeed as a body. Okay? And that's very biblical. So let's read. We're going to start with what we read last week, and then we'll go into this week's passage. It says, starting in verse 1, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and in sound faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Okay, again, this is what we covered last week. If you didn't listen to last week's message, go back and listen to it. You can catch it on the website, wherever we have podcasts available, like all, all of those different places. Like go back and listen to that message because this is part two of that message from last week. This is a two-part message within this series. But this passage is talking about the older and more mature Christians in the room. Live a sound life, live a good life, a life that is worthy of respect. And it says to live in such a way to set up verses 4 through 8. So it tells us, hey, you need to live this way because. It actually says the word then. Starting in verse 4, it says, then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good, and your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Okay, so let's go back through, because it's a pretty exhaustive list of what is required regarding the younger Christians in here. And ladies, it starts off with you in verses 4 and 5. starts off in, in verse 4, it says, by saying, then. Okay, this is incredibly important. This is there to remind Titus from Paul, remember Paul is writing this letter to Titus, that if the more mature Christians act in a way that is worthy of respect, in a way that, that verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, you know, uh, uh, spell out for us. If they live like that, then the younger Christian will be able to do these things. So, older, more mature Christians in the room. If you didn't feel the weight of that last week, this week you're gonna. Because if you don't live according to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, then the younger Christians are gonna be lost. So all of this is contingent on a more mature Christian acting in a way that a more mature Christian should act. Okay, so let's, let's keep going. 
it seems strange here, okay? It seems strange here that, that Paul is actually reminding Titus, and Titus is supposed to remind the younger women that they have to be reminded to, to love their own children and love their own husband. Seems a little strange. I'm sure the majority of you in here, especially you ladies in here, will be like, I'm reminded I have to love my kids all the time because I don't like them oftentimes. And so I'm reminded I don't like you right now, but I got to love you right now, right? Like, like I think, but, but I do think it's strange that, that Titus has to remind these women. I do think it goes back to what we talked about last week and in week one with this idea of the new Roman woman, okay? That, that these ladies in Crete were doing their best to be these independent women that, that if I can establish myself outside of, outside of my home, that that's where I'm really going to be able to get fulfillment, and Paul is saying, hey, look, you cannot put those things above your family. So let's, uh, let's, let's keep going. It says women, or so women, women still, even today, are willing to, to put their career in front of their affections and welfare of their own kids. And this is a caution we have to take. Do not mishear me. I did not say women need to, uh, to all women need to be homemakers. And if you have a career, you're wrong. That is not what this says. I think there are plenty of women who are incredibly capable of carrying out a career and keeping the welfare of their kids at the forefront of their thoughts and their actions. Okay, so do not mishear me. I think this is saying that, I do think this is saying though that, that if you sacrifice your family for your career, then you have an issue. And I would say this is true for men in the room as well. If you are sacrificing your family for your career, we have a problem. But then it continues into verse 5. This is when it's going to get really spicy. Okay, it first mentions the idea of being self-controlled. This is the same word that's used back in verse 2 that Paul used to describe the, the more mature men. And this is then linked with the idea of being pure. Okay, when you saw that word pure, it's not talking about sexually pure in this respect. Okay, what this is talking about is the idea of, of being kind of a, a, a above reproach, having an upright moral character. He actually uses the same word in 1 Timothy 5.22 when Paul was writing to Titus' contemporary uh, uh, Timothy to covet that same quality of purity, of uprightness. And then the next word on the list gets taken a little bit out of context. It says, be busy at home. Hey, oftentimes people have read this and assumed that, oh, that means that the wife's role needs to be in the home and she needs to be busy at home when she's in the home. Okay, that's not what this is saying. This is saying that while you are in the home, ladies, be busy in the home. Be doing the things that you should be doing in the home to make sure that the home is running well, that the home is running efficiently. It's really the things that you're already doing, ladies, for the most part. Okay? It's saying, hey, don't just sit on the TV and watch another HGTV show and then you're four in and you haven't done anything the whole day. Okay? It's saying, hey, look, while you're at home, do the things at home that you, that you need to be doing for your home to be able to function. And then Paul mentions this idea of being kind. And this idea of being kind, I think, is relatively self-explanatory. We all understand this idea of kindness. But I would venture to say that the idea of being nice and being kind are different. Okay? Being nice to somebody is not mentioning, not mentioning when they have a booger in their nose and making them feel really good about themselves. You guys like, where is this going? Being kind to somebody is pulling them aside and telling them they have a booger in their nose so they don't walk around the rest of the day with a booger in their nose, right? There's a difference between the two. And so ladies, don't just be nice to each other, be kind to each other, okay? Being kind involves telling the truth regardless of how it is that it makes you, it makes you feel, 
But let's get to the phrase here that makes, uh, makes a lot of people, especially those in my generation and below, a little bit uncomfortable. Paul says that wives should be subject to their husbands. Let's sit in that for a second. Let's feel good about that for a second, okay? Because that's a, that's, a, that's a difficult thing. And husbands who just nudge your wives just know that you got it coming to you in just a second, okay? So for all of you in here who are like puffing up your chest, just wait uh, just a second. And to be clear, this isn't the only place in Scripture that mentions this. In just the New Testament alone, okay, we're not even talking about Old Testament, which had laws surrounding like men and women and husbands and wives and all this stuff. In the New Testament alone, we also find it in Ephesians 5.22, which we're going to read in just a second. So if you want to flip to Ephesians 5, we're going to spend some time in there. But also in Colossians 3.18. Okay, so this isn't a contextual issue. This isn't just to the ladies on Crete. This isn't just to this one specific time in this one specific area. The Bible is very clear about this over and over and over again. This sentiment is one, though, hear me, that has been abused in church for a long time. This sentiment is one that, that husbands have used to hold over their wives to make sure that they stayed in subjugation to them. That is not what this verse is talking about. And if we're going to seek clarity in this verse, we're going to get to it in just a second. Because unfortunately, the, the way that the role of a woman has been defined by the church for a long time is, is by the way that, or, or, or it, it is how, let me start over here. Because <laughs> I don't want to fumble this and someone calls me a misogynist. Unfortunately, the way that the role of a woman has been defined by the church for a long time is by what she is not allowed to do. And last I checked, when you go through that list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians, there is no distinction between who gets what spiritual gift. And so the value of the person does not change, but their role is different. Even when we're talking about men and women, and specifically husbands and wives. And so if we think, though, that we are going to define women by what they are not allowed to do, I think that's both foolish and irresponsible. And let me give you a warning. Okay, the, Bible, the, the Bible is very, very clear. This is more of a call on a man's life, on a husband's life, than it even is for the wife in this case. This is not the Bible saying that men are right and women are wrong. This is not the Bible saying men get to talk and women aren't allowed to. This is not the Bible saying men have a greater value than women do. Okay, this is Paul setting up what a biblical marriage should look like. Do I think these verses are translated correctly and it means what it says it does? Yes, I do. I believe that, that women should be subject to their husbands. And that subject word's kind of hard, right? Other places we're going to see in Ephesians 5 that it actually says the word submit, which has a little bit of a salt to it. It's a little more flavorful than be subject to their husbands. And I know not all of you agree with this. Call me a chauvinist if you like, but I'd like to tell you why I believe that this to be true and why the Bible calls men to this as well. So it's Ephesians 5, 22 to 30. You can follow along. It says, wives submit to your husbands to, or wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Okay. Pretty clear, right? We're in the same kind of vein as we talked about in Titus 2 in verse 5. 
But it goes on then. It says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, underline verse 25. Verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. Underline that, husbands. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So it starts out the same way as Titus does. Wives, submit to your husbands. But it ends up giving some context to the way a godly man should act and who the wife should be submitting to. The wife should be submitting to a man that loves her in the same way that Christ loved the church. That's what that passage is saying. So let's take a second. Even if you haven't been around church for a long time, you can probably give an answer to this to the person that you came with. Is how is it? Come up with a very real example with the person that you came with. If you're watching online, you can drop it in the comments. How is it that Christ loved the church in a very tangible way? Go ahead and murmur. Go ahead. Figure it out. Tangible way. This is when you're supposed to talk, guys. So my wife and I were talking about this two nights ago. Because I ran this whole message through my wife before I presented it uh, this morning. Um, but we were talking about it. And we were like, okay, how is it then? Very tangible ways that Christ loved the church. Very tangible ways that Christ served the church. Well, let's go back to when Jesus was, was actually on earth. Right? And so when Jesus was walking around on earth, there are countless ways that, that he, served, he prayed for the church. Very deeply, as a matter of fact. He prayed for the church. He healed the church. And when people were sick and ill, they, they came to him and, and he touched them and he, he healed them. He spent time with them, even, even when they were social outcasts. Right? He cared for them. He looked after them. He evangelized to them. He told them. He called them to follow him. All of the disciples, hey, drop what you're doing and follow me because I have a life that's better Right? He did all of those things. He prayed for them. He served them. He literally got down on the night before he died and washed their feet for them. Their feet that had been walking around in mud and animal filth and just disgustingness. He said, look, this is not below me. I am going to serve you because I love you because you're part of my church. And if that's not enough, Christ ultimately came to come and die for the church. So wives, when we're talking about this idea of submitting to your husband or being subject to your husband, this is the husband that you're supposed to be subject to. The husband that is willing to do all of those things. That really is the deepest meaning of marriage. This relationship between Christ and the church. Notice how in verses 28 to 30, it describes this parallel between Christ and the church being one body and the husband and wife being one flesh, right? It's the same thing. 
It says, like, even though husbands should, should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hated his own flesh, but, but nourishes it and cherishes it. In other words, like one flesh union between man and wife means that in a sense they are now one body. So the care a husband has for his wife is the care he has for himself. They are, they are one. What he does to her, he does to himself. And so therefore headship, which is what we're talking about right now, and we're talking about the complementarian view of headship, if you want to get theological on it, I believe that's what the Bible speaks to a complementarian view of headship in the home. The other view is the egalitarian view, okay? There's actually four different views of women in leadership and, and headship and all of these different things, and we can have that discussion later. Okay, but when it, when it comes to headship, headship is not a right. It's not, it's not a right to command. It's not a right to control. It's a responsibility to love like Christ, to lay down your life for your wife in servant leadership and in submission, like submission from the wife. It's not, it should not be coerced. It should not be out of cowering or out of fear. That's not the way that Christ wants the church responding to him as, as the leader either. Christ wants the church to be free and willing and glad and, and, refi and refining and strengthening. So in other words, what, like what this passage of Scripture does is two things. It, it guards against the, the abuses of headship by telling husbands to love like Jesus, and it guards against the, the debasing of submission by telling wives to respond the way that the church does to Christ. That's what this passage is talking about. And maybe a, a definition of the two would be helpful. Uh, John Piper, he's a theologian, he's a pastor. Um, I wish he was my best friend, but he's not. He says that, that headship, though, is a divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. And while I know there are going to be people who disagree with this, there is an entire, there is entire churches and theologies that I believe do biblical somersaults trying to make their understanding of culture fit with their understanding of Scripture. And to be honest, I just don't believe it for a second. I believe that men and women were created equally but different, both valuable both with different roles, and both of them are perfect and beautiful and created by God for a reason. Beyond that, I think you'd be hard-pressed, guys, in the room. And maybe I'm wrong. You'd be hard-pressed to find a wife who wouldn't be willing to submit to a husband if he was living in their relationship in the way that Paul tells them to live in Ephesians 5. I think that's the crux of this entire thing. So we read this passage in, in Titus 2, verse 5, and, man, we get all uppity, and we think to ourselves, oh, man, here we go. We're going to talk about women being subject to men and, and, and all of those things. I, I truly believe that, men, if you are walking this out, this is not a call on a wife. This is a call on a man to step up and be a man. So... As you can tell, I get, get a little fired up about that. But this could be an entire series, and maybe it will be one day, but we gotta, we got to keep going. So, ladies, that's your list, okay? Men, this is yours. Let's go back to Titus 2. It's verses 6 through 8. It says, similarly, 
similarly encourage the young men to be more so, or to be self-controlled in everything set them an example by doing what is good and your teaching show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us okay let's take a second and talk about that word us for a minute Okay, if you've been reading this, assuming that this is all about how you should personally act so people like you more or so people will, will, will you'll be more encouraged or whatever it may be. Like if you think that this is about you, it's not. This is about you living in such a way that the church is without blemish. This is bigger than you. This is about the church as a whole. So in verse 6, attention kind of gets shifted to the young and immature men. And in this case, there is once again a special, a special exhortation directed towards this idea of self-mastery. They're supposed to encourage, like they should be encouraged to be self-controlled. And the wording used here is much stronger than it is used earlier on. So really quickly, let's think about young men for just a second. And as you are thinking about young men, what maybe is one encouragement that you should probably give to young men in order to make sure that they are living good, godly lives? I think actually be self-controlled is a pretty good one. I had a, uh, a teacher in high school. His name was Mr. Medefend, and, and we studied uh, Sierra Nevada was the class, which meant we took an entire year just studying the Sierra Nevada mountain range. It was awesome. I loved it. It's my favorite class throughout high school. But Mr. Medifin was a mounted ranger in Yosemite uh, in the backcountry for 25 summers, which meant he got to ride around in a horse in the backcountry of Yosemite. And he did like a lot of search and rescue stuff, right, because a horse can get there faster than a car can in the backcountry. So he had these crazy, crazy stories that he would tell us all the time. Like, like, it got to the point where, like, Mr. Medifin, can you please stop telling us those stories, right? Like, it was just, just like, not good stories. But, but the stories that he would tell um, that, that were usually worse are usually stories that entailed a group of guys going to do something. Maybe you've experienced this before. Mr. Medifin would call it testosterone poisoning. When a whole group of guys would get together and their some IQ was lower than the individual for some reason, Right? It doesn't make any sense. Guys, when we get together, we tend to do dumber things. We need to be more self-controlled. When I was in college, right, this is always a great way to start a story. When I was in college, I was living with four other dudes. And we decided, you know what would be a good idea? If we piled all of our mattresses onto the first story and jumped off of the second story onto said mattresses, right? Sounds like a good idea. Guys in the room are like, that sounds pretty good. Ladies in the room are like shaking their head because they know that their husband probably did something like that when he was younger too. Like self-control is important to a young man, right? Even as we are, we are, we are doing our best to raise five young men into, into great young men would be our goal. Like self-control is a regular conversation that we are having in all avenues of their life. And for whatever reason, men, like we want to show everyone what we can do. We can prove our, our alphaness. You know, I see this in my home already. Like I'll be at the fridge and I have a kid come up and just like try to bump chest with me. I'm like, who are you? Get out of here. But the amount of chest beating and, and wrestling in our home is ridiculous. And the decisions they make when they are together and away from wisdom, the older men that we had talked about are different decisions they would make if they were one-on-one -on -one with someone who was older and more temperate. 
You know, Titus then goes on from that point. And there is a shift, really there is a shift here from Titus talking about young men, or Paul talking about young men to Titus, where Paul is going to start, start talking to Titus specifically as a young leader in the church. He goes on to remind Titus that he should be an example to these guys by doing what is good. This is, I believe, directed not just at the mature Christian, but to Titus as, as the Christian minister. It's a high demand to be shown as an, as an example in everything. Is really the language that comes across here. But really, that's like as far as we're supposed to act, that's as, as far as we're supposed to act. We've covered the how. But Paul, like any good leader, he needs to talk about the why that is behind all of this. Just like earlier when I came up and I talked about Fall Carnival, I didn't just say, hey man, we had a thousand people here. Awesome. Later. No, I came up and I talked about we had a thousand people here and this is why we do it. Right? Paul is about to do the same thing, just with fewer bounce houses involved in this, uh, in this context. Okay, this is why the Bible, this why, is not just a list of rules. We're supposed to live like this. We're not supposed to just simply live like this because the Bible tells us to live like this. Paul tells Titus not just how to act but how to teach. He says, he says show integrity. He says, show seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. Essentially, this means that, that the teaching that he is putting forth has to be of such character that those who oppose your teaching would be ashamed. And those who see the church acting the way the church should act, that, that those who see individuals acting in the way that the, the book of Titus says they should act would be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us because it's bigger than you. Church, can I ask, can I ask a question for just a second? And, and in the quietness of your own heart, ask yourself a question. Does the world have anything bad to say about us? Not you about us, because that changes the question. That holds us all to a higher standard. Because it's not, it is not just about us, because it seems according to Scripture, by living in an exemplary life and having speech that is above reproach, we can shame those who oppose us because they will see a massive contrast between what the world says is good and what the Bible says is right. This doesn't mean they will be at a loss for words. This, this means that the Christian leader should present no legitimate opportunity for their opponents to use evil in a report against them. That there is nothing in their lives so that even if they tried to, they would look foolish, that they would be ashamed of that. So the question remains then, the Christian, are you living a life that is so far above reproach that anyone who tries to bring fault against you would feel shame because you're living in such a way that no one could call your actions into question. So if the answer to that question for you is yes, if you think, yep, I'm living that far above reproach, I would say you need to work on your humility. But if your answer is no, and I'm sure for a lot of us in here our answer is no, you need to identify the things in your life that are holding you back from living in such a way and living, and living in that way and sprint towards Jesus. Church, we have to start living out our faith in such a way that people know exactly what it is that we are about. 
that you are, you are about the living Jesus Christ who came to earth for the sole reason of providing a pathway into heaven for everyone who should call on his name. The problem is we sit on our hands and we act like the rest of the world acts. Our demeanor is no different. That we, we, go to, we go to work and we get stuck in the same traffic and we act like everybody else. That we post like everybody else. That we live like everybody else. That we do things exactly like society would have us do things. Even though we know that the spirit of the living God has taken up inside residence of all of us. That we have power that comes from the Holy Spirit. That our eternity is not only safe, but also incredibly unimaginable. Because we get to be with God forever. And here we are trying to, to, trying to work on not gossiping as much. Or not telling as many white lies to get through the day. Like we were created to live for so much more than not sinning. We were created to live for Christ. And this passage, it doesn't, doesn't spell out everything we shouldn't do. Because Christianity isn't about what you shouldn't do. Christianity is about fixing your eyes on Jesus and doing everything imaginable to bring more people into the kingdom of God. So I'm going to close this like I've closed every other message so far. How is your belief? Because that's ultimately where your actions come from, is your belief. Your belief dictates your action. Do you believe, do you believe that you are actually representing Jesus on this earth and that when you die, there is an eternity? Or do you simply come to church because it's what you're supposed to do on Sunday? And again, this is for the Christian. That's a hard question. I think that's the question, though, that we need to answer today. And I'm going to give you time in just a second to be able to do that. But it's the question that we have to answer today. I'm going to invite the, the bands to come on back out on the stage. And the first Sunday of month, we, we always end with communion. And so if you didn't receive communion elements on your way in, just throw your hand up. We got some ushers on either side. They'll, they'll take care of you. Just keep them up. They're, they're coming. <clears throat> but as they come, I want... I want that to be the question that you wrestle with this morning. Is your life reflective of the hope that we have in Jesus? Is your life reflective of the hope that we have in Jesus? And if not, take this opportunity to talk with Jesus about it, to commune with Jesus. Here at FBH, we believe in, in what's called an, an open table and an open table means that you don't have to be a member of your church to receive communion, but we do ask that you've placed your faith in Christ if you do partake. And so if you have not yet said yes to Jesus, and that's something you, you would like to do this morning, we would love to be able to celebrate communion with you as, as part of the body of Christ for the first time. But maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. And maybe you have decided that, you know what, being a Christian was kind of just my get-out-of-jail-free card. I believe in cheap grace that, hey, I'm just going to say yes to Jesus so I know that I'm going to heaven. And then after that, you know, I can live however it is that I want to live. If that's you this morning, that's a blemish on the church. That you are called to live in a certain way to make sure that the church is above reproach. 
So when people look at you, when people look at us as the capital C church, they would feel shame for trying to bring anything against us. So if that's you this morning, you're saying, you know what, I've, I've kind of let my relationship with Jesus fall away a little bit. If that's you, I want you to pray alongside of those people who haven't said, said yet said yes to Jesus in the first place either. So why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we, uh, God, I thank you for your truth. And I thank, the, thank you that you have called us to a standard. And not because it's going to make us feel better about ourselves, or we're going to win influence with people, or, or we're going to have more friends, we're going to get a promotion, or if I'm just kind enough, people will like me more. It's not because of that. It's because our responsibility is to be equipped here and go out into the world to change it, to present the gospel to those people who don't yet know you, to be a living example to those people. And so, God, for those of us in here who maybe have fallen away a little bit, who, who have kind of just felt a little bit cold and distant from you, Lord, I pray this morning that you would make yourself known to them, that you would come in and, and, like a blazing fire, Father, that they would feel you, that they would recognize who you are, and that they would live their lives accordingly. And for those who have, who have yet to say yes to you, but maybe this morning is it. And maybe this morning you're like, you know what, I want to say yes to Jesus who, who I know came and died on a cross for my sins. That, that I want to say yes, I want to celebrate communion this morning for the first time or the hundredth time. Like I'm ready to commit my life to you. If that's you this morning, I would just ask that you would pray along with me in the quietness of your heart. Say, say Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior that I constantly fall short and I'm sorry for that. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me, to take that sin and provide a way up to you. And C, I would choose to follow you every single day of my life, which means living in such a way that the church would be above reproach. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray.